Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. 
now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, the travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Tucson, Arizona, coming to you from the legendary Canyon Ranch. My next guest has quite a storied history, and that's just in New York, <laughs> but he actually holds the title of Chief of Health Innovations right here at Canyon Ranch, but of course he's distinguished by being the 17th Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Richard Carmona. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be with you. You know, when we're, here we are. You know, people are now, thanks to uh, the 24-hour news cycle, or maybe we can blame the 24-hour news cycle, uh, for the flow of information and the speed of information in terms of people's health, uh, preventive medicine, lifestyle changes, balance, all of those things. And as I'm talking to you now, we're confronted with, of course, the coronavirus. And, yes. and all the things that are happening, I mean, this is a show about travel. Well, the coronavirus is a show about travel, isn't it? It most definitely is. And, uh, you know, it's as we see it playing out before us, we are able to try and curtail it. But yet, you know, uh, all it takes is a plane ride and that virus moves to another part of the world. So from, from a health professional point of view, what is being done by the CDC that, you're, that you like? What is being done by the airlines or the airports? Because, you know, we, we live in a world of connectivity. People just don't fly point to point. They'll fly, you know, Hong right. Kong to Los Angeles and then change planes. And three hours later, they're in Wyoming or they're in Atlanta or they're in Boston. Well, my, my colleagues at CDC, as well as the NIH, where Tony Fauci is, you know, the premier uh, virologist in the, in the world, are uh, coordinating their activities to help to prevent any of the virus coming into the United States. And we've already had a few cases where people were in China and came in, but also working with our allies around the world and, and any other place that needs help that doesn't have the health and scientific infrastructure that we have in the United States to train their people. We send our public health officers all over the world when something like this happens to try and curtail any of these problems in the countries they are originating. And we also provide them help as well to try and stop the disease in their own countries. How does this relate to another outbreak that you and I remember very well, SARS? Well, they're all viruses. And one of the things they have all in common is we're going to have to expect this as we move forward in our lives, because these are, these are viruses that mutate. They have immune systems, and they want to survive just like we want to survive. And sometimes you combine two of these viruses, like in an animal and a human, and then it becomes more virulent. It can get into a human much more easily. And because you don't have the immune system to fight it, it can sometimes become a pathogen that makes you very sick and in some cases even cause death. Are you surprised at the rapid uh, outbreak here? Uh, I don't want to call it an outbreak, but we're seeing an expansion of the, of the, of the number of cases. No, I'm not surprised. I mean, understanding the epidemiology of a virus such as this, and that's why our CDC, our NIH are working all over the world now with health departments in many of those countries where they have an infrastructure to try and curtail the disease there and provide them the best science to be able to address their particular needs in those countries, like in China, where it comes from. I remember, doctor, when SARS was, was uh, at least on the front pages, uh, where you could not land in Hong Kong without somebody taking your temperature. And then other countries adopted that procedure as well. They're doing that again now with the coronavirus. Does that really make a difference? 
Well, temperature is one indicator, Peter, as you know. The fact that you have a fever doesn't necessarily mean you have that, but what it does alert the health professionals to do is pull you aside, examine you, take a history, and see if you've been any place where the virus is noted, and if, if, by, if possible, you may even have the disease. If so, then that person's travel would be restricted because be, they would become a vector for the disease. They could spread it any place they go. So temperature is just one indicator that's looked at, uh, and it allows the screeners to move you aside and get a little better history. And so for anybody listening to this show who's about to get on a plane, and, and you know the worst four-letter word that starts with F when it comes to travel, as I'm sure you know, is fear. Um, yes. What are you recommending? Well, first, look to see where you're going. Where, where are, is your trip taking you? And I would make sure that one, most important thing, where Americans still aren't 100% on board, make sure you got your flu shot. So, you know, the flu kills thousands of people every year, and many people still don't get their flu shot. So make sure you have your flu shot. Make sure you wash your hands very carefully. When you are in a, a toilet, on a plane, or whether you're sitting in your seat, take wipes with you. Wipe down the surfaces that you'll be eating and working on. Use uh, one of those wipes to open and close the toilet door. Uh, some of the dirtiest places, if you will, for transmission of pathogens are those bathrooms. So there's simple things you can do every day, not just for coronavirus now, but in any way to try and prevent uh, uh getting a viral disease or even a bacterial disease for that matter. And that presumes, doctor, that you can even fit into the bathroom of these planes. <laughs> well, they are a bit small, Peter. I've noticed that. They are. And the other thing I would also recommend, and people don't remember this in that, or they don't, for, they actually just forget it, is that, you know, you mentioned washing your hands. That's before and after you visit the lavatory, before and after Absolutely. you eat. Um, and you know, the doctor's recommending that you wipe down the, the tray tables, the armrest, anything that your skin might touch, including the air vent above you on the plane. All of that yeah. can play a role, and it only takes about 40 seconds of your time to do it. Yep. All good advice, Peter. Excellent. And let's move on from that because, you know, that's the stuff that's, you know, going to impact travel. The numbers are going to drop, uh, but the people who are smart travelers will take advantage of that and continue to travel and probably get a better deal. But let's now translate to that as to how you apply your work here to the Canyon Ranch. Uh, your title is, is an intriguing one to me, Chief of Health Innovations. So, of course, that, that forces me to challenge you with, okay, doctor, give me an innovation. <laughs> I, will, I will be happy to. Well, first, I'll give you a little background, Peter. I, I've lived at Canyon Ranch for over 30 years. I, when the uh, company was just starting early on, I built a home up there because that's the lifestyle I was committing myself to. And I lived that for all those years, came to know the owners very well. And when I returned from my uh, last post uh, on active duty as Surgeon General, they invited me to come in and be a CEO and uh, vice chairman of the company, which I did. And I loved working there. My commute was only 30 seconds, which I felt was a payback from uh, the long commutes I had to go from <laughs> Bethesda to the, to the Capitol. And, um, and so uh, it was a perfect home for me because it was really an extension of being Surgeon General about optimizing health and wellness, reducing disease and economic burden. The owners then uh, got, got on in years and they sold and I was still going to stay and help out, and, but not in an official capacity. But the new owners uh, and new leaders asked me to stay on uh, in a position and they created this position of Chief of Innovation so that I could continue to help them identify emerging science and technology that can be used to develop new content, new products, 
that will engage our guests to optimize their health and wellness. So, for example, several years ago, before it became uh, trendy, we I picked up on the trend of brain health. Uh, when I was Surgeon General, dealing with everything from PTSD, depression, whole host of other issues, I also saw that we were having an increase in dementias, that is, loss of cognitive ability as people age, and the population was aging. So when I came back home and went to Canyon Ranch, one of the things I did early on is say, Let, let's look at this trend. And we wrote a book, uh, myself and our, and our subject matter experts, on the 30 Days to a Better Brain. That is, what are the elements that you can do in your life every day to improve your cognitive ability and preserve it as you age? We also uh, have done mindfulness, uh, meditation. So any and all science that I see that's emerging globally that has a factual basis scientifically, I will work with our subject matter experts to ensure that it's incorporated in all of their presentations. And so now we're doing uh, genomics, pharmacogenomics, nutrigenomics, how actually genes get expressed based on your exercise, your sleep or lack of sleep. So much to talk about here that a lot of people don't often get a chance to do. They're either flying over it or driving through it, but my next guest knows all about it because he studied the history of this town. He's been here for a while. I think he first came in 1973, which, by the way, is when I first came to Tucson in 1973, working for Newsweek and covering Arizona for the first time and what an eye-opening experience it was then and as well now. My guest named David Devine, the author of Tucson, A History of the Old Pueblo from the 1854 Gadsden Purchase. David, welcome. Why, thank you for having me. Now, for those of us who don't know what the Gadsden Purchase is, enlighten us. Well, when the Mexican-American War ended in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the United States acquired a great deal of territory. And but, Arizona was the territory. Well, north of the Gila River. Yeah. But um, people like Jefferson Davis wanted to build a southern transcontinental rail line, and north of the Gila was not conducive to that construction. And so when he became Secretary of War under President Franklin Pierce, he urged that more land be acquired, and James Gadsden was sent to Mexico to do that. So for $10 million in 1854, the land south of the Gila River was acquired to build a southern transcontinental rail line. And the rest is history, as they say. That is correct. Since 1973, you know, there's Phoenix and there's Scottsdale. Tucson didn't always get its its name in the sun or its its place in the sun. What's changed here? How has it evolved? Well, clearly we've gotten a lot bigger population-wise. Yeah. But the town, in my opinion at least, has retained its character, unlike Phoenix, that we have honored our past and our diversity, and we celebrate that in and have been doing that for decades, and I think that's one of the real strengths of this town. You know, when I first came to Tucson, it reminded me of the first time I came to Albuquerque because the airport looked more like a train station. Uh, you know where I'm going, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the big wooden benches and stuff like that. When I landed in Tucson last night, it is still a small and manageable airport, which I love. Yeah, absolutely. To fly out of here is a pleasure. It's so easy. It is. <laughs> and I don't know why more people don't do it. They should. Yeah. They should. So... When people are first coming here for the first time, not you, but when people visit, what's the biggest thing that they're surprised about, about the history of this city? Oh, I think how long it is. People have been living here permanently for 4,000 or more years, and that uh, 
is continuous. So this is one of the longest inhabited places in North America. And that, I think, really surprises a lot of people. And then how has it changed in terms of displaying that history? When you come here, how do you immerse yourself in that history? Where do you go? Well, we have a lot of very nice smaller museums that reflect our history from the Tohorodom Cultural Center out near Sells to our railroad museum downtown to our botanical gardens, to a lot of, to the Presidio Museum downtown. We have a lot of things like that. If people are interested in history, they can learn an awful lot in a few days. You know, you mentioned the Railroad Museum downtown. Uh, are the trains still coming in? Oh, sure. My wife and I took Amtrak to New Orleans a couple months ago. That, that's a Sunset Limited? No. Oh, yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. I, I love the train. Um, and if anybody can take a long-distance train today, I get, I encourage you to do it uh, because they may not be around much longer. That is correct. Um, Amtrak is doing everything they can to not just make money because they're not making money. They're doing stuff to save money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and long distance trains cost them on average between three and $400 per passenger. They lose right. on every passenger on every train. So it doesn't take a math was to, to realize that unless they get tremendous subsidies from the federal government and from the communities they serve, it's not going to be long before they're going to have to reorient the, the schedule. That is correct. And the Sunset Limited is limited number, number one on their hit list. <laughs> it is. And yeah. by the way, I've taken it. I love it. Yes. I love it. And if you haven't taken that train, try the uh, the Southern Crescent, which goes from New York's Penn Station all the way down to New Orleans. Uh, one of the oldest trains in, in America. Uh, leaves New York around 2 in the afternoon and, and gets to New Orleans supposedly on time at 6 in the evening, which it never is on time mm-hmm. because, as most of you may know, if you've listened to the show before, uh, Amtrak doesn't own the tracks, and as a result, uh, they they have to make way for these hundred car freight trains lumbering on by, and they have to stay on the side until they go by. But if you're not on a time sensitive trip, and you have a couple of extra books, and you want to bring your laptop and think and create, I can't think of a better place to do it than than one of those trains. And it's a great place to meet people and talk to them and have a conversation from around the world. Yeah, uh, we were on the train with a, a college student from Japan and. It was very interesting, his views of America, which you would never get on a plane. Now, tell me about South South Tucson. Well, back in the 1930s, there were some folks who owned auto courts and other businesses down there who didn't want to be under the auspices of the city of Tucson building regulations. And so they decided to try and incorporate, which they did. And then they were disincorporated because it was so controversial. Then they reincorporated. And it's a one-square-mile city surrounded by the city of Tucson. Now, you know, we mentioned the train, but one of your favorite places that we need to go have breakfast is the Congress Hotel. Right. Which is right across from the train station. That is correct. What's great? What are we ordering for breakfast there? Well, my wife said uh, French toast because she's the one in our family who remembers what we eat. And we eat there all the time. And it's uh, been there a long time. It's a great place. And it's known because that's where a couple of members of Dillinger's gang were captured back in 1934. And that led to his capture later in that day. Ooh, were shots fired? No, no shots were fired. See, that I, I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> well, the, the, the Tucson Police Department did a very efficient job and they got the drop on him. They got the literally got the drop on. That is correct. And where are we going for lunch? Pico de Gallo, which is down on South Sixth Avenue, and we eat 
fish tacos there. See, when I think of Tucson, I don't think of fish. Well, we're not that far from the Gulf of California. Or the airport. Or the airport. <laughs> and this is a place that's been there for many years, is quite famous, and is a very traditional uh, Mexican-type establishment. Wow. Okay. And last but not least, dinner. Roses, which is at Campbell in Fort Lowell. And my wife and I have been eating there for 45 years. Is your picture on the wall yet? No. Willie Nelson's is, but my, <laughs> ours is not. Uh, when we were in uh, graduate school here, we started going to Roses. And been going ever since. I'm reminded of a story before I introduce my next guest that happened when I was first a correspondent for Newsweek back in, uh, well, actually back in 1971. And uh, I remember an editor back in New York telling me, and I was based in Los Angeles, he was telling me there is no culture west of the Hudson River. He actually believed that. Well, my next guest would uh, tend to differ with him, as do I. She's the chief curator at the Tucson Museum of Art. Julia Sassi, how are you? Great to be here. You do disagree with that, I'm sure. I absolutely do. <laughs> I mean, and the other thing that, that tends to be somewhat stereotypical is when somebody says Tucson and art, it can only mean Remington in the Southwest, you know, and guys on horses. I don't think so. Absolutely. And you mentioned 1971. That was sort of the pivotal time when uh, people were starting to look at everything from minimalism to uh, conceptual art and all kinds of new art forms. And it wasn't lost on the West, but it was Elaine Horwich who started to bring it to the forefront of national attention. And that's why it's so important that we did this exhibition. And we'll get to her in just a second. But before we get to that, and by the way, that exhibition's opening up just about a week. But what am I going to find at the museum that's going to surprise me as one of your permanent installations? Well, we are in the process of building a brand new uh, Casser family wing of Latin American art. We have one of the top collections of pre-Columbian, Spanish colonial, and a growing collection of contemporary Latin American art, and we're making an increasing uh, commitment to that uh, art form, as well as massive collection of Mexican folk art. So that's really special, because we're the gem of the Southwest for that. Um, but also, we have a very impressive collection of contemporary art, and museums around the country borrow from us. That's a good sign. Mm -hmm. That's a good sign. By the way, I like you already because you're from Wisconsin. Oh, that's right. I'm that's, a cheesehead. <laughs> I'm, I'm not from Wisconsin, but I spent five years there as a badger at the university. So. You get it. I, I, my mom, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But you've been here since 74. I have. I started out actually uh, going to uh, get my Master of Fine Arts degree from Arizona State University. And while I left to teach at Washington State and I lived in New Mexico, Arizona keeps calling me back and I just can't think of a better place to live than Tucson. And when people come to the museum, assuming they do come to the museum, because mm -hmm. so many people will come to a resort and never leave the resort. I really encourage people to do a day trip, a morning or an afternoon. You know what I did the other night? It's an amazing experience for me. I'm born and raised in New York. I went to public school on 82nd Street and Madison Avenue, which meant I could do lunch hour at the Met. That's right. right? And the American wing and the Egyptian wing and all that, right? Well, they have something called Museum Hack. And for about $100, right, They you meet them at 6 o'clock at night at the museum. And there are only there are six of you in the group. And they take you on an unofficial, unexpurgated tour of the museum, telling stories that no museum will ever tell you about particular works in the museum. It's a whole different way to see it. It's great. But you first have to get in the museum to do it. That's right. So I'm always telling people, don't try to do three museums when you go to a city. Just do one. But give it enough time so you can really immerse yourself and, and let, the, let the pieces tell their story. That's right. And we have done a tremendous uh, job of starting to embrace the community. We now have first free Thursdays 
you can go to the museum during that time and see 900 people that you've not seen normally in the museum. So families are coming out, young people. Uh, it's been a tremendous change. I started in 2000 at the museum, and I can see a vast difference. People are seeing it as their community museum. And they're supporting it. Absolutely. Can you spend a night at the museum? I wish you could. I tried that. Oh, I, come on. I did a show once called Into the Night, and I said, we should have a pajama party, and I couldn't get it past the uh, security people. So, <laughs> What do they think people are going to walk out with in their pajamas? I Actually, I didn't want to be in charge of a thousand people in their pajamas anyway, but it would have been fun. But it was your idea. It was. My, my encouragement to you is to get back on that and get it done. <laughs> That's a great story. You know, the museums that have done really interesting work around the country are the museums that are offering overnights for kids, like yes. sleepovers. The zoos are doing that. Um, I think people would really love that. We have, uh, to me, a mark of a successful museum is when you see the museum filled with children. And I'm, it's, I don't have children myself, but every museum I've gone to, I can tell that uh, they're connecting when they have school groups in. And we have a really great tour program for school children, and it warms my heart because that's the aha moment for most of the artists I know when they first went to a museum and they said, something connects with me here. Joining me now, the medical director of the Canyon Ranch here in Tucson, Dr. Stephen Brewer. How are you, sir? I'm very fine. Thanks for having me. And you've been here almost 16 years. Yes, this is my 16th year. As I said, almost 16 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I forgive you for going to Ohio State. I went to Wisconsin, but we'll, we'll get to that well, later. Well, we, yeah, we'll deal with the Badgers later. Yeah, I know. We should always deal with the Badgers later. But <laughs> in, and, and you beat us this year, so I, I don't forgive you for that. Yeah. Other than that, when we live in a world of, of uh, wellness, we live in a world of, of, of health maintenance as opposed to uh, dealing with disease. Uh, preventive medicine, if you will. How do you actually get involved and mandate that here? Some of the job is, don't tell anybody, but it's pretty simple. <laughs> and the reason it's pr- pretty simple is we just basically give the, the things that people really need. They give, We give them sleep. We give them... Uh, What's ag- that? I know. Uh, it, it's amazing in the real world, we just don't get sleep, especially now with all the new phones and people have emails. People they sleep w- with their phone. I know. And I'm, one, w- I'm one of them. And you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you go, well, I forgot to answer that one email. And so you're on it. And so you're now, you have disrupted sleep. So the people who are coming here are basically manifesting that. They get, well, they come here with this baggage. That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. And they come here and they, and it's funny, at nighttime, there's not a lot to do at Canyon Ranch. So they all they can do is maybe sleep and get, for the first time, they're getting seven hours of sleep Plus, you have a cell phone policy here. Oh, yes. Well, you, you know, they people will try to sneak it around the corner, but basically... Oh, I would be one of those. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we don't encourage the usage of cell phones. We have certain areas for, to use it because we th- feel you need to disconnect and relax a little bit. And that's the whole idea, the purpose of this place. But I've always said when it, when it applies to travel, not just here, but anywhere in the world, that people don't... They're somewhat in denial. They really don't change their lifestyle when they change their location. Here, they've got to do it. Well, they're forced to do it because there's, uh, you know, you're forced to, you're not forced to get up and go for a walk, but everybody else is going for a walk. You're not forced to eat a healthy meal, but that's all you've got here is a good, healthy meal. You're not forced to go to the lectures that we have here, but that we have a lot of really wonderful lectures. And I have so many people when I give a lecture, for example, they'll look in the window and they try to figure out what's, what's going on there. And I always say, come on in and join us. And it's amazing how these people who didn't even know anything about a particular heart disease or um, some other things that we lecture about, dementia or whatever, suddenly they're totally engrossed and they have more questions than anybody else. So You know, I, I walked by one of the rooms last night when I got here and they were actually having a lecture on dementia 
And uh, my question is, how does anyone's lifestyle, in terms of the control of their lifestyle, play into that? Well, dementia is an endless pit, but for example, we know that the one thing that really actually has an impact in decreasing the risk for dementia is exercise. It's, there's been studies done on that. It's absolutely been shown that those people that exercise have less dementia. We also know that those individuals that have better weight, uh, that they control their weight, have a less incidence of having dementia. We know that people that are uh, diabetics are at higher risk, but if they have it better controlled, they are less risk for dementia. So all these factors in terms of lifestyle have a huge impact on decreasing your risk for dementia. And of course, diet. Oh, diet is, is, is huge. But the irony is they're going to come to Tucson, they're going to come to the Canyon Ranch, they're going to live well for a week, and then they're going to go back on and eat airline food and go home. You know what? It's, it's interesting you ask that. When I was in private practice for over 20 years in that great state of Ohio, which you love. We're not talking to you about that. <laughs> so anyway, um, when I was in private practice for over 20 years, people would come into my office and I'd see that they're 30 pounds overweight. By the way, folks in Ohio and Wisconsin tend to be 30 pounds overweight. <laughs> well, they have a, a higher incidence of obesity. I can yes. speak about this because I went to school there for five years. Yeah. I saw what wonderful, I ate. Wonderful people, but, <laughs> yes. but yes. So they're overweight. They may be having problems with their marriage. They they live across the street from the health club, but they don't go and get, and get a membership. Or they actually may have a membership and never go, and they don't do anything about it. The beauty, and I I see them a year later and they're in worse shape than they started. They come here to Canyon Ranch and it's amazing how it gets into your milieu after being here for five or seven days or longer and you suddenly realize I can actually do this on a regular basis. I create this and I feel so much better when I leave here. So they don't go back on Oreo Patrol? Well, it's amazing how long it, it really does kind of get into your system that you want to continue to be healthy because after I, I can't describe how much better people feel after just treating themselves well for a week and you, it's amazing. You go well. I can't, you can't feel that much better in a week. Wherever you are, even if you're if you're at home and you're uh, fi- finally decide I'm going to do all the right things, a week later you'll be amazed how much better you feel. We just kind of this environment kind of leads you into that. And the thing is this: uh, I came here about 13 or 14 years ago, and I ordered scallops for lunch. I got one scallop. I got one scallop. <laughs> we're, like, we're up to two now, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but um, it was an excellent scallop. <laughs> but I had to learn that you know just because I see it on the plate doesn't mean I have to eat it. The most amazing thing is, and I get it, every one of my patients will come to me when the, the first day or two they go, is that all the food you're going to serve me? <laughs> that would have been me. Yeah. And about day three, they're going, I really, I can't, I can't believe it. That's all the food I really needed. My yeah. stomach really is full. And a lot of it's got to do with in our, in a, in the the real world, many of us um, have really food that is high caloric and very small size, and so we need more and more food, and we have high calories. Versus here, we have so much more fiber with the fruits and vegetables that you feel you're filled up. And when you look at that plate, you went, "Gosh, I really did need all that." I food. have to tell you, last night at dinner, I know what I ordered. I ordered the, uh, the snap peas and I ordered the salmon. The portion of the salmon that I got was about half the size I would have gotten at other restaurants. The snap peas was actually larger than I would have gotten at sure. other restaurants. And by the time I finished it. I was full and I was happy. Yeah, it's amazing. I know. All right, so now we know about diet. We know about exercise. But what's the biggest surprise for people when they come here that they weren't expecting in terms of their of their daily regimen that they can then take home with them? I think it goes back to uh, what I was just saying before, that just by doing the right thing, they feel much better. Uh, I think it's always funny. I'll see a patient at the, at the beginning of the week. And, and by the way, you're describing them not as guests, but as patients. Well, we got, I'm still old school a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I was in practice for about 25 years before I've been here. So that tells you how old I am. Yeah. And You look uh, great, by the way. <laughs> Canyon keep, Ranch. Keep eating those greens. <laughs> 
they come in and they say, you know, they feel terrible, they feel awful. And um, at the end of the week, I see them again. They thank me. They go, oh my gosh, thank you so much, Dr. Brewer, for everything you've done. They walk away and I go, I really didn't do anything. All I did is allow them to do what they should be doing at home. You allowed them to discover something on their yes. own. Yes. Okay, I get that. And in a given week, I know there are no guarantees. I mean, you're, you're not you're not promising them goals specifically uh, in terms of specifics. You're trying to change some lifestyle modification, if you will. Well, yeah. I mean, and they the, the main thing is they realize how easy it is. They always think, oh, who wants to be healthy? I mean, I don't want to have to actually go. But out you know what? Though everybody says they want to be healthy. Nobody says I want to be unhealthy. If you look at every survey and every hotel guest questionnaire, they'll say I'll only book a hotel that has a health club and a swimming pool, and nobody ever uses it. But they'll they'll say that's a criteria for them to go. A lot of it's safety in numbers. Yeah. Because everybody else is doing it. You know, when you're back home, when you decide, oh, I'm going to go run, and your neighbor next door, you would have a glass of wine, two or three glasses of wine with every night, says, why do you want to get up in the morning and go for a run? Right. And you've got all this negative activity around you when you're back home. But here, everybody else is going for a hike. Everybody else is exercising. Everybody else is eating well. And it's amazing how you can get on the bandwagon with that. So it's, it's, it's basically uh, peer pressure. Uh, Come on. Healthy peer pressure, <laughs> yes. As and I encourage it. See, I'm a victim of unhealthy peer pressure. <laughs> I'm going for the Pringles. But no, not here. I promise you I won't do it. I won't do it. It's not allowed. Joining me now, somebody who is probably the most important person here at Canyon Ranch because he's the executive chef. He also is involved in portion control, and I want to talk to him about that, too. But Absolutely. Good morning. <laughs> Russell, Michelle, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a whole integrated approach that you guys do. Mm -hmm. It's not just exercise or well-being or wellness or spiritual excellence. It's, it's also what you're putting in your face. Absolutely. And what I, and, and what I see in terms of your menu is something that you don't see on, on many menus. It's it it's it to me it's it's almost it's it's intense uh, when I first read it, mm -hmm. right? Because you're not just telling me a description of the meal, you know. Menu psychology today at restaurants all around the world is about where you place the price and whether you spell it out in dollars mm -hmm. or in words or letters or whether you use a decimal point or the number nine or where you place the item on the menu that's going to get the most look and the most order based on profit. That's not your menu. It used to be my menu before I got here. So you know exactly what I'm talking I about. I know exactly what you're talking about, yes. You know, I mean, we've done stories about this on CBS where mm -hmm. we visually show you that, the, you know, menu placement and menu psychology is unbelievable to it. It is. And it actually drives profits when it's done well. Mm -hmm. From the restaurant point of view, and when it's not, get ready. It's, <laughs> you know, they get lost. Impact. But in this situation, reading your menu takes time. Mm -hmm. Because you're not just telling me what the dish is. You're telling me everything from calories, protein, mm -hmm. fat, grams, yes. right? All the, all the key components for wellness, yes. And, and you have, but then again, just reading those numbers isn't enough. I then need to know what it means, right? Which is the, down in the bottom of the menu, it, it explains every single component of the dietary um, evaluation of each dish. Also, the location uh, placement for those items are really key for the eye. So I did utilize some of See, that. See, there we go. So the center portion of that menu, we, we start off with a plant-based forward 
cuisine to help guide people? Because Canyon Ranch is about learning and development and of self and others. But and isn't it also about, and I'm jumping ahead here, but you opened the certainly. door on this one. Isn't it also about learning about the process of food, mm-hmm. learning about the preparation of food, so you mm-hmm. can take those skills back home with you? That's the purpose of the menu. And yeah. the menu is also written that much like a book. So when you, read, when you read a book and you become enveloped into the words and expressions within that book, then you get to keep that and take that home with you. And so that's why the menu reads that way. So the, the purpose of Canyon Ranch is for you to come to Canyon Ranch, understand what your learning opportunities are based upon this visit, and then take it home with you and put it to practice. You know, there are some resorts, uh, not necessarily as comprehensively involved as you mm-hmm. guys are here, but there are some resorts whose menus, to me, are a little too precious. Um, you know, they'll, they'll describe the dish by saying, oh, by the way, uh, this dish was cooked by our chef who only ate tof- tofu as a child and was reared <laughs> on a ranch with, you know, only pictures of animals. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is a little bit different. You're laughing, but you know what I'm talking about. I know about. exactly what you're talking about. Um, you kept it simple in certain ways. I mean, mm-hmm. last night I had snap peas with mint. Sauteed yes. snap peas. I get, get. I got the concept. Yes. Right? And I love snap peas. Right. But there's. It's, it's important also to notice what's not on your menu. Right. So I didn't see anything that was deep fried. Um, I didn't <laughs> see a lot of butter. Very low use of butter and only on one ingredient. What's that? That's the cauliflower mash that I can't tamper with. It's the most <laughs> precious item on that menu for ladies, years. Ladies and gentlemen, news bulletin <laughs> just did order the cauliflower mash. Order the cauliflower uh, mash. Yeah. But. Uh, the portions, when I first came here, right, this is 13 years ago, mm-hmm. I ordered scallops. So I got one scallop, right? I went, mm-hmm. what's that, right? I ate it very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> savored I every savored bite. Savored every bite. Absolutely. You've, you've changed the portions a little bit, but they're still, relatively speaking, uh, not out of control. So the salmon that I ordered last night mm-hmm. was about half the size of a salmon I would have gotten at another restaurant. Precisely. The snap peas were actually more than I would have gotten at another restaurant. Yes. Uh, and uh, at the end yes. of that, I was full. Yes, it's plenty of food. And also, too, we use organic. We use non-GMO produce. We're using natural. Is it easy to source that? It's more difficult. So yeah. a lot of there's a lot of behind-the-scenes activity that goes on with the sourcing and actual procurement of the products. See, I've always said that if you understand the process, you really appreciate the product. So walk me through how difficult it is for you to source some of this stuff. Well, when I first got here, we had a few few uh, local farms, and now we've expanded that to local farms in Tucson because it is city gastronomy, and so and we can cut, touch that in a moment. Um, so we locally source everything that's available from Mother Nature locally that comes to the ranch. Now, when you first got here, because you came after your career at Starwood, right? Yes, I 29 mean, years. So you had to change the way you looked at food. Actually, I've been I've been Canyon Ranch for two decades. No, but I'm saying, but when I you just first came here... I didn't arrive here yet. No, no, I know yeah. that, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. When you first got here, you had to change the way you thought about food. In some, some way, shape, or form, yes, that is true. I just, But I've always had the vision of feeding people, not filling them, and uh-huh. always focus on in, initial delicious ingredients that are purposely sourced to feed the body well. So if you're looking for chicken fingers and a grilled cheese sandwich, you've come to the wrong place. That's true. But if you're looking for chicken and waffles, we do have that for breakfast, but it's not deep fried, and it's a twist... A a healthy twist on chicken and waffles. Okay, tell me how you make those. All I, right. Now that you opened that door. I did open that door. Yes, you did. Uh, so the Belgian waffle is actually a cauliflower batter, cauliflower waffle, and it's one quarter of that Belgian waffle that you normally get that whole piece. And then resting on top of that is a delicious, decadent chicken apple sausage patty that's seared fresh to order. And then sautéed Swiss chard because we have to have that plant-based forward on there. And then that's, rest- a, that's a requirement. Oh, that's Absolutely. In balance. And then also we have the poached egg on top. Then the hollandaise is a Canyon Ranch signature hollandaise that actually has yogurt in it to cut the fat. And then to reduce the amount of sugar intake, 
I added the maple syrup. I was syrup, going for the syrup. Okay. But you, you have the syrup. Yeah, it's touching with the hollandaise. So then you have one quarter the amount of maple syrup you would normally take in with a waffle, and it tastes like maple syrup. So you know what? I finally figured you out. I find you're just about disguising stuff. I'm about accentuating the positive. I so know you can it, but enjoy you life. no, because you you hide that <laughs> stuff in, and, and it doesn't ruin the taste, and it doesn't ruin the flavor. Because if you told somebody initially, because people mm-hmm. have different habits that they have difficulty changing. Mm-hmm. If you told somebody initially, this is what I'm going to do to this dish, they go, really? I don't know. And then they eat it. And yes. They go, wow, this is cool. And just just to share with you, that was one dish that I thought was going to be a huge home run, and it was a train wreck when it started because <laughs> it just chicken and waffles, cauliflower waffle. What is that? And then it started taking off. So it was and a slow burn. It was a slow, slow burn. burn. And then it started, now it sells much more efficiently because people, the word of mouth is the, is the most powerful message. Well, since you brought up that subject, what's the one dish you, you thought, do I really have to put this on the menu? Oh my God, really? And everybody orders it. Crudite and dip. So I, I did the crudite and dip because that's simple. it's super simple, but not Chef Russell style and Canary style. Oh, excuse style. me. Okay. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it has our, our signature hummus on the plate and all of the vegetables, beautiful, vibrant, colorful vegetables are standing up from the hummus. So it's a picture. So it's understated on the menu, crudite and dip. So that, that was the causation of why it didn't move. And then it went into the restaurant and everybody's looking at it, watching it go by. What is that? Right. Now it took off. People were able to jump on that. Yeah. And then it it's, it's, a, it's a healthy, fun creation that's, that we eat with our eyes first, so then it's visually delicious. You know, one of the things that you learn when you're here, um, and, uh, and most people don't get a chance to do that until they get here, is, is a sort of a holistic approach to the entire experience. It's not just a, a resort. It's not just a wellness retreat. It's not just a medical facility. It's it's all of those things. And joining me now, who has the best title of all, uh, dir- the Director of Spiritual Wellness right here at Canyon Ranch, Stephanie Ludwig, how are you? I'm well, good morning. Of course you're well. You're the head of spiritual wellness. <laughs> you're not unwell. It's required for the job. It is required for the job. Now you've been here about seven years. I have. So you've seen the program evolve. Absolutely. How has it changed? There's a deeper recognition that our guests come here seeking to become more whole. And that that includes attention to the physical, the emotional, the mental, but especially the spiritual. I think of the spiritual as the glue that brings together all of these parts of us and integrates us as whole people. Now, not to be cynical, Mm -hmm. uh, you know what the uh, the Dalai Lama said to the hot dog vendor at Yankee Stadium? Tell me. Make me one with everything. Okay, that was it. That was it. I'm sorry. I, I just had to do it. And that's it. what we I've aspire waiting, to. I've been waiting to use that line. I finally got a chance to use it. But let's get down to a definition of terms here. Yeah. Because we can all talk about spiritual wholeness and spiritual wellness. Mm-hmm. What does that really mean as we try to apply that into our daily lives when we leave a place like Canyon mm-hmm. It's very particular to a person. It's what gives your life a sense of purpose. It's what makes life meaningful. It's what connects you to yourself, to others, to nature, to the world. So it's really quite subjective. Yes. So if somebody says, I'll give you an example. I'll give you different sides of the spectrum here. Somebody says, I like doing nothing. I like reading newspapers and just watching Wheel of Fortune. And that makes me whole. (laughs) You can't make a judgment on that, right? It won't be helpful to. I might ask some questions about. No, you can you can pick vowels and consonants. <laughs> you can versus someone yeah. who comes in on the other end of the spectrum saying, "Yeah, I have no balance in my life. I'm yeah. a total workaholic. Yeah, but it's what makes me feel good, right? Mm-hmm. So is it is it your job or your mission to just try to figure out a balance there? 
My job is to invite a person to reflect on their own lives and ask, what's the balance for me? And that might be the balance in the moment. Right, but there are people here, patterns don't really change that often. People get trapped by them. They do. Yeah. And there's also the potential for those patterns to break up. Okay, so what are those moments? Mm -hmm. What are those things that you look for, those signals, those, I won't even say the word symptoms, but those, mm -hmm. those indicators that say to you, here's an opening. I'm tired of this. I'm, here's one I heard yesterday. I'm bored with myself. I want to be something more. I have a longing for something different. Or there's a time of transition. Right? Now, when somebody, Transitions are openings. Okay, but when somebody says that, mm -hmm. it's not just like going to the website like GoDaddy and getting a new job. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's, it's, it's a complete redirection, isn't it? It requires very intentionally paying attention to that communication from inside of you as a human being. Which got you in trouble in the first place. How do you mean? Oh, it got you to that point of mm. saying that you were bored with your, with your life. Yes. Right. So, yeah. all right. So give me, a, if you can, an example where somebody said that to you, and we go back to yesterday if you want, mm -hmm. and how you were able to help them on their own find that redirection. What would bring you joy in your life? What's missing that you have a longing for? What's unlived for you? These are questions that yeah. can offer insight. Of course, part and parcel of that mm -hmm. is making sure that we're not dealing with either unrealistic unre or never-to-be-realized goals, right? So at a certain point in your life, you come to grips with the fact that you're not going to hit the home run in the bottom of the ninth inning in the World Series and win the game. Yes. Or that you're not going to be president of the United States. That's right. Or that you're not going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or any of those goals that you thought you were going to realize, right? So we know that's not going to happen. So where's that middle point that you can find that balance? The most important skill paradoxically of spiritual wellness is learning how to grieve learning how to acknowledge a loss and to feel your way through that so that you can move into a new opportunity so grieving is often a part of becoming spiritually well you know my dad once told me these words and i've never forgotten them i, I, mm -hmm. I completely think he's right he said it's not about winning or losing or being right or wrong or being left or right it's about how you adjust and how well you adjust, how quickly you adjust, how sensitively you adjust. So grieving is certainly an adjustment. It's an adjustment. It's a very visceral, emotional letting go of something we've been attached to so that space can open up for something new. So if somebody is addicted to a very bad diet, mm -hmm. that's a form of grieving, I suppose. How do you mean being addicted to a bad diet? Well, meaning that you're grieving something else and therefore you're throwing yourself into, into that bad behavior. Mm. I'd be likely to say that's a lack of grieving, ah. right? It's a way of comforting yourself, but it's not necessarily it's a bad way of adjusting. actively grieving. It's a yeah. bad way of adjusting. Yeah, yeah. So for someone like me who's not well adjusted, <laughs> <laughs> I got work to do. I got work to do. But, but you get into that. You, get, you go deep. And how to have compassion for yourself when you want to have all that food to comfort yourself oh, is a part of spirit. You and I are going to talk about that later. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.